0: A art stoat, a coheleg, coracuna, the nonanal, a art wary, then diplomatic, representatives of the National Famine Commemoration Committee, a Iana Iliokis uh, a cordia. Is cushionora dam maroctrana herin, a uh, vehegor le muinta herin, I will see him all go to He is <laughs> coming, he is <laughs> coming to And is to me about the story of the story of the story the story of Cedele Sule in a masque on Gortemont. It is my honor and privilege as President of Ireland to join with fellow Irish people, friends of Ireland, and those with an interest in Ireland and its history, wherever they may be and in whatever circumstances, as we mark the cataclysmic events from our past, and in particular that we we'll called the lives, deaths, and suffering of all those individuals who perished during that tragic event imposed on Irish people that we refer to as Angorthamor, the Great Hunger, the Irish Famine. Today designated as it is National Famine Commemoration Day, is one of the most important days for commemoration in Ireland, in my view. It is an opportunity for the people of this island to reflect on and recall the suffering and loss of that period in our history, to remember those who fled to create new lives abroad and reflect on the best lessons that we might take from such a recall and how it might influence our contemporary lives and the lives of others. The salient facts are known. Between 1716 and 1815, the availability of cheap food in the form of the potato and cheap fuel in the form of turf, had permitted the Irish population to expand prodigiously. However, the diet of the labouring poor became ever more potato dependent. And by the 1830s, one third of the population, three million people relied on potatoes for over 90% of the calorific input. In these circumstances, a failure of the potato crop would precipitate disaster. Repeated failures would simply decimate the population. The unprecedented attack of phytophora infestans destroyed one-third of the crop in 1845, three-quarters in 1846 and 47, and one-third in 1848. Massive mortality, followed by emigration, ensued One million died and two million more emigrated in the next two decades, cruelly paralleling the three million potato people who had become totally dependent on the tuber in the pre-famine period. These deaths were disproportionately concentrated in the south and west of Ireland and among the poorest people. This is the third time the state commemoration has taken place in Ulster, and may I say how pleased I am to be here today in Milford. The location of this year's National Family Corporation here in Donegal is particularly welcome given the deferral of the hosting of the 2020 event in Donegal due to the pandemic. The setting here, as you have heard at the old site of the Milford Workhouse, is also so appropriate given the adversity endured by the people of Donegal in the face of poverty, Hunger and emigration throughout the nineteenth century and in particular during the Great Hunger. It is indeed a singularly appropriate venue for such a commemoration, too, as Hugh Dorian of Farnick, while in the Milford Pool Law Union, wrote an extensive and moving account of Moor and its transformation of his home place. An account which has been brought to the public by Professor Brendan Moxuina and David Dixon. And this peerless account of the famine from below, is so well distilled in the old Irish proverb, "Ní higean an Sach Shang, the satiated will never understand the emaciated. In a paper entitled "The Grey Zone of the Great Famine," Professor MacSwiney refers to Skibbereen dispensary doctor Daniel Donovan's written account in, 18, of, in 1847 of the moral consequences of the famine, its ingress on the lives and perceptions of the people. I quote, Another symptom of starvation, and one that accounts for the horrible scenes that it usually usually exhibits, is the total insensibility of the sufferers to every other feeling except supplying their own wants. I have seen mothers snatch food from the hands of their starving children known a son to engage in a fatal struggle with a father for a potato, and have seen parents look on the putrid bodies of their offspring without evincing a symptom of sorrow. Such is the inevitable consequence of starvation. And it is unfair to attribute to inherent faults in our people the moral degradation to which they are at present reduced, and which is inseparable from a state of severe physical privation. Ungartha Moor is a watershed in Irish history, constituting as it does the greatest social catastrophe in terms of mortality and suffering, one that has had profound consequences on demographics, politics, culture, religion, agriculture, and industry. The legacy of Ungartha Moor is complex, deep, wide, and has many strands that have impacted on the Irish collector's psyche, as well as at the individual level. Its legacy is one of involuntary emigration, culture loss, demoralisation, and loss of confidence, both in terms of population and in terms of its impact on the Irish language, and the marks this would have on the country, and in particular on Irish society, ramifications that still play out today on so many levels. Although we have established and accepted, particularly through recent historiography and an expansion of local studies, a number of more detailed facts pertaining as to its causes and consequences. And it is an event for which an apology has been issued on behalf of the British government, dating from 1997, the 150th anniversary of Black 47. We can acknowledge the many different elements that make up the story of Ireland's greatest disaster, its causes, contents, and consequences, and to call them levels of importance as to sources and consequences of Angolta Moor. Ideological assumptions as to essence and practices of the Irish as inferior are at at the very root of the economic theory and practices that allowed Ungarthamore to have the final impacts it had. Ireland was, as, quote, a nation perishing of political economy, to co church of Ireland clergyman Richard Townsend, who devoted his time in Skibbereen and Skull to the care of the poor and sick, where the death rate was over 50%. A sense of moralism pervaded among educated, ruling Britons of the time, ascribing fundamental defects from which the native Irish were perceived to suffer as moral rather than financial defects of the Irish national character, including disorder of violence, filth, laziness, and worst of all, a lack of self-reliance. This was unambiguous, xenophobic, racial, and cultural stereotyping, for these are classic misinterpretations, tools of othering. The changes in agricultural practice that were taking place in Ireland in the late 19th century, for example. For example, those in response to external demand for agricultural product, leading to expanded exports. The changes from labour-intensive tillage to grazing, which was labour-intensive. Many of these changes were brought about by clearances, eviction in so many instances. Such clearances and evictions had a devastating effect on the poorest, who were dependent on a single food source. When during the famine that single food source, the lump of potato having failed, they starved. What followed remains the single most important event in forming and giving form to, for Irish people, a distinctive form of relationship to the land, to immigration, and to politics in the decades that followed one by the famine catastrophe and its human aftermath. For the Irish people who survived, the determination to survive, whether at home or abroad, was endured at a terrible cost. The role of laissez-faire economics must be not only included but indeed forefronted in any description as to the causes of war. Crucially, in response to an escalating loss of life, Britain could have prohibited the export of grain from Ireland, especially during the winter of 1846-7, and early in the following spring when there was little food in the country. Even in the brief period when meal was imported, the government could have taken steps to ensure that this imported food was distributed to those in greatest need. The government could have continued its soup kitchen scheme for a longer time, which was allowed only to be effective for just six months, from March to September 1847, despite it being relied on for providing food for up to three million people and proving to be both effective and inexpensive. The decision by government to end it prematurely was again a policy of non-interventionism, supporting the Whig's belief as to how government and society should function. Daniel O'Connell visited the building where I now live known now as Lutron, then the Vice-Regal Lodge to plead with the Viceroy to stop the export of grain the nationalist freeman's journal reporting that the delegation had been received very coldly stated that Lord Hatesbury's attitude to the Irish poor could be summed up by the phrase they may starve Such doctrines of inaction were founded on an ideological and authoritarian tendency of the strength and right to impose that was widely supported in the domain of politics, one that was confident of its place among those who held power, to impose a pernicious economic orthodoxy that would allow for the sanctioning of poverty amidst plenty, conspicuous assumption amidst mass starvation, all rationalized by an ideology that felt unchallenged to in elevating a suggested absolute right of poverty above that of natural law while consigning an immoral duty of humanity, ethical duty of government, or of even basic concern to passive acts of charity. Such voluntary acts, including those of James Hatchook and his son, were indeed of an heroic nature. They, members of the Society of Friends, dying of fever themselves, as Duke did in the service of the poor of the West of Ireland. Let us not forget, too, that a sense of providentialism guided the policies of the government of the time. Charles Trevelyan, the senior British Treasury official, in charge of famine relief in his 1848 book, The Irish Crisis, offered the following justification for it all. With the direct stroke of an all-wise and all-merciful providence, the sharp but effectual remedy by which the cure is likely to be effected, one which lays bare the deep and inveterate root of social evil, God grant that the generation to which this great opportunity has been offered may rightly perform its part. This may indeed be a desperate attempt at rationalisation, of his abandonment of an earlier and desperate effort at importing yellow meal that was a one that was abandoned to comply with government imposed policy and the consequences however are undeniable. It is when we acknowledge the facts of what has been omitted too often from the generally accepted narrative of Angartemore and speculate on the full ideological content and its influence on policy that we are best prepared to use our own famine experience in such a way as might generate an appropriately ethical response to the obscenity of recurring famines in our own time in different parts of our shared vulnerable planet. Angartamur, the famine, had a devastating effect on the people of Donegal where we are gathered today. During the Great Hunger, Donegal had a population of nearly 300,000 people more than two-thirds of whom were involved in agriculture, using but one-third of the county's land. The diet of the time consisted of potatoes and were available in some areas, herring, salt, starbite and milk. Clothing was meagre and wretched. Furniture in the hovels was pitiful and bedding was scarce. Living conditions were overcrowded and smoky. And there are several European accounts as well as British ones reporting on such conditions, particularly in the 1830s. Despite the 1838 Pool Relief Act providing some assistance for the poor, very little impact was felt by the starving and diseased population. The workhouses failed to provide reasonable living conditions, were substandard and in a poor state. James Hattuck, that young Quaker from England, and a sympathetic witness who would later distribute relief on behalf of the Society of Friends, was appalled by what he witnessed. He described the destitute in Donegal as crying from hunger when he visited the Glinty's workhouse. He realised that the condition of people in receipt of so-called official relief was little better than the hovels reported. Their bedding consisted of dirty straw in which they were laid in rows on the floor. The living and the dying were stretched side by side beneath the same miserable covering. Disease and pestilence are filling the infirmary. The pale, haggard countenance of the poor boys and girls told of sufferings which it was impossible to contemplate without pity. As the decade wore on, the workhouses reported outbreaks of typhus among their inmates and as a result would not admit any more in need. Destitution reigned in Donegal during the harsh winter of 1846-7, despite some relief from a Belfast Charitable Association. The parish of Glen Kill lost 17% of its population through disease, starvation and emigration. Conditions on Aaron Moore were described by an American visitor in the same year 1847. No food, apart from bits of turnip and seaweed, and still the blight continues to spread. Sowing of potatoes had decreased by 90% and sowing of turnips had increased eightfold. With workhouses full to capacity, fever and pestilence stretching from Ballyshannon to Moville, high unemployment and relief slow in coming owing to primitive transportation and the distance from Dublin, which was the centre of famine relief. Emigration to Canada, America and Scotland was desperately sought, seen as the best route out of the misery for those who could manage to find the fare, Emigration from the region was principally through the port of Derry, creating communities such as the Stranola diaspora in places such as Greenock in Scotland, Brunswick in Canada and elsewhere in Australia and the United States. Owing to this widespread emigration, communities such as Stranola grew in strength abroad and at the height of the famine, emigrants embarking from the port of Derry numbered over 12,000. Of the 80,000 Irish who settled in Scotland between 1846 and 1851, most of whom left from Derry, many landed in Glasgow, but more than half, 41,275 were repatriated back to Ireland by the civic authorities in the subsequent five years in an article entitled Irish Destitution and Disease in Glasgow, the Glasgow Courier newspaper wrote, Without the slightest exaggeration, this city is now in as bad a condition as respects Irish pauperism and disease as any city or town in the most afflicted districts of Ireland itself. Independent of the infirmary and every other customary receptacle for fever patients being quite filled with these persons, They are to be seen every day squatting in swarms on the river banks beside the bridges and individuals are often found stretched in a state of suffering and covered with rags and filth in the public thoroughfare. In 1850, the death toll of Angorthamore in County Donegal was in excess of 13,000 people. The death toll across Ulster was approximately 111,000 people. The toll is likely to be higher still. Given that baptismal records are an insufficient means of tracking death as many infants perished before they were baptized, some in transit as they along with their mothers flocked to, to new lands. The legacy of the famine and journey goal is seen today in the so called pauper's graveyards and heritage sites, and items that include the huge iron boiling pots for soup scattered around the county and in the abandoned nineteenth century villages. In districts where the landlords were absent or in caring, the poor were especially vulnerable. Captain Jones, an agent of the British Relief Association, described the conditions of poor in Dunglow and Monachteric as wretched, remarking that they belong to nobody, and nobody seems to take much interest in their welfare. They are therefore in the hands of the British Relief Association to keep them alive. His statements give an insight into the importance of private charity in assisting the poor especially in marginalized or peripheral areas where government relief was totally inadequate and the local landowners, many of them, were absent. Evictions, as historian Christine Keneally has noted, they had commenced before the famine and they added homelessness to the problem of hunger. Of all the Ulster counties, Donegal witnessed some of the highest eviction rates standing at almost 16%. Approximately 40,000 people died or emigrated from County to Nicole alone between the years 1846 and 1851. However, it was not simply the demographic loss that made it the great hunger and so de- devastating. Evictions which were followed by the destruction of houses of the poor together with a gradual move to pastoral farming, would change the landscape forever. Less easy to quantify our capture in a tangible way is the cultural loss that was experienced and remains with us, remains with us today. Perhaps most stark was the damage on the Irish language. In the early part of the 1800s, approximately 40% of the population of Ireland spoke Irish. Those who died or immigrated in the famine were disproportionately Irish language speakers, mainly because the famine hit rural areas hardest, areas which are the highest rate of Irish speakers. In 1861, a decade after in Moore, the number of Irish speakers had halved to 24%. This is from 40% in 1800. This decline continued for some years reaching a low of 18% around 1926, when attempts at its revival were initiated by the new Irish government following an excellent report with maps on the state of the Irish language, the Malkaghi report. However, as Cormac O'Grawda has remarked, neither O'Connor-like nor Fenian brands of nationalism did anything to foster Irish, and by the time a more advanced nationalist ideology adopted the old tongue. It was too late. As a descendant of a great hunger survivor from the Rosses in Western Donegal put it, reflecting on the wider cultural impact of the years of suffering in our community. Recreation and leisure ceased. Poetry, music and dancing died. These things were lost and completely forgotten. When life improved in other ways, these pursuits never returned as they had been. The famine killed everything. Angartha more forced a people to abandon many of the informing cultural and collective impacts from their past, both physically and culturally. It permeated all aspects of life, as Desmond Egan's poet, poem puts it so well. The stink of famine hangs in the bushes still in the sad Celtic hedges. You can catch it down the line of our landscape, get its taste on every meal. Listen. There is famine in our music, famine behind our faces. It is only a fieldway, has made us all immigrants guilty for having survived, has separated us from language, cut us from our culture, built blocks around belief, left us on our own, ashamed to be seen, walking out beauty so honored by our ancestors. One of the most obvious and devastating effects of the famine was emigration. Although the famine itself resulted in about 1 million deaths, the resultant post-famine emigration caused the population to drop by a further 3 million. About 1 million of these are estimated to have emigrated in the immediate famine period, with the depression that followed continuing the decline until the second half of the 20th century. These emigrants largely ended up in North America, with some in Australia and in Britain. Census data show that between 1845 and 1855, 1.5 million people left for good. In 1845, emigration was at the pre-famine rate of 50,000 per year. In 1846, some 100,000 left, and emigration peaked in 1847 when 250,000 left. Over the next five years average, the average figure was 200,000 per year before the numbers began to decline. By 1855 the rate was down to 70,000 per year. In the period of the famine decade 1841 to 1850, when 1. 1.3 million people emigrated overseas, of these 70% went to the United States. to Canada and 2% to Australia. Most people paid their own fares to make the trip, although perhaps a small number had their fares paid by their landlords. The cheapest fare was to Canada, priced around 55 shillings on what was the most dangerous route with poor vessels and seamanship, resulting in the highest losses at sea. A fare to the United States cost between 70 and a 100 shillings Depending on the ticket class, with many of the emigrants suffering from fever, coupled with the cramped and insanitary conditions on board, disease was rampant. It is estimated that perhaps on some routes, as many as forty percent of steerage passengers, the lowest category of passenger accommodation on the ships, died either en route or immediately after survival. One witness commenting on abide writes, "This vessel left with four hundred and seventy-six passengers." Of whom 158 died before arrival. A striking feature then of the missing famine narrative is perhaps our insufficient recognition of the fact that Moor and its associated emigration impacted differently on various social classes among the Irish population. For example, when the potato crop failed in 1845, huge numbers were at risk, but some more than others. Perhaps a million and a half landless labourers were virtually totally dependent on the potato, while it was a major component of the diet of a further three million, mainly courtiers and smallholders of the rural poor. It is worth recalling too that many different streams of emigration that constitute 19th century or post famine families reflected different types of migrants with different capacities not only in terms of their source or motivation, but in terms of their human and technical disposition. The 1.5 million, for example, who had emigrated earlier between 1815 and 1845 have been described by Garo de Tujic as Protestant and prudential. Famine and post-famine migrants, however, were largely desperately seeking survival itself. So while the emigrants of the period of 1815-45 drew strongly from the northern half of the country and north munster and included a sizeable protestant element towards the end of the period the number of catholics and the shared counties involved were increasing always standing behind our famine experience and the adjustment to it is the issue of land an omnipresent theme in irish history the massive expansion in Ireland's population of 75% between 1780 and 1821, was assisted by the phenomenon of partible inheritance. That is, with a low life expectancy, unions were formed and children born on tiny parcels, people seizing their opportunity for life as fields gave way to families in the, in the post famine adjustment. The families would give way to fields with one male inheriting, one female marrying, and the rest of the females having, as Ardensburg and Kemble put it, to travel. They would put it like that in 1934. Land hunger went on to dominate Irish society after the famine, influencing Irish politics for all of the remaining century and the early decades of the 20th. Given this foundational part of our historical experience, it is easy to understand how the continuing issues of food security and food sovereignty in our contemporary world of course resonates so profoundly with us as a people and must feature in our ethical reflections and our responses as we commemorate the period of Ungartha Moor. The strong commitment of the Irish people to humanitarian aid and relief is of course strongly related to our own past struggle with hunger that is ingrained in our collective memory. We make this commitment however not only urged by memory, as we may be, but because it is the right and moral thing to do. It is an example of the Irishness we wish to be known by, one grounded in decency, ethical principles and taking our share of global responsibility. Many including the distinguished economist Amartya Sen have correctly insisted that famine is almost always a predictable and preventable occurrence if only there is the political will to prevent it. Yet we live at a time that still allows extreme hunger and famine to exist. For example, as I speak in the Horn of Africa, they have entered their sixth consecutive failed rainy season, resulting in displacement of millions in Somalia, Ethiopia and Kenya, who struggle to survive amid scarce water resources, hunger, insecurity and conflict. The dependence on the potato, a staple in the 19th century Irish diet, has been replicated to in contemporary African experience, where entire populations are perilously reliant on three food staples, wheat, rice and maize. And these are imported to a dangerous level of dependency, and subject to speculation on the markets. Such dependency With a range of local food sources being threatened by the consequences of climate change to which they have not contributed has contributed to mass hunger and starvation earlier this year i traveled to senegal to address the second african food security conference i highlighted there that there is a urgent need to tackle hunger in africa through proper security in the basic necessities of life i spoke of the importance of delivering universal basic services and creating a lasting sustainable future built on security in its most inclusive sense, its most important sense, one grounded on our food security informed by indigenous wisdom. We have a moral and ethical responsibility to support our global family in dire need, to help with sustainable solutions to ending all famines wherever they occur on our shared vulnerable planet and to provide a decisive response to climate change, which itself is leading to an increased incidence of famines globally. Failure to act to prevent famines worldwide does not merely make an echo. It repeats and merely replicates the doctrines of inaction, moralism and laissez-faire policies that precipitated the Irish famine. They contribute to mass displacement, such as that which we now see in Africa. Our experience of migration too has parallels that are contemporary in the five years between 2018 and Eugene and today as I speak. According to a recent report by Caminando Fronteras, 11,286 people died trying to enter Spanish territory from Africa, almost all of them at sea. And this excludes the many who die before it make it to the coast. The United Nations Migration Institute believes two people die in the Sahara for every one who drowns at sea. The parallels with Ungirtha and the mass displacement it caused 175 years ago must not be lost in us. We have a moral duty and a great opportunity to continue to honor our commitments to those vulnerable and displaced who seek asylum and refuge in our shores it comes as we mark on Gotham Moor that horrific period of starvation and disease in Ireland from 1845 to 1852 that constitutes the country's greatest social disaster, a defining calamity that became part of the long story of betrayal and exploitation as part of a powerful empire and which led to the growing involvement in Ireland, the movement in Ireland for land reform. And independence from the United Kingdom. It is do so within the prism of an ethical recall, in a manner that enables such a healing, that leads to action today, and to a concern for the lives of others. Ongotamore must be acknowledged and in a lasting way. Its painful and manifold legacies in time, they must be transacted for the benefit of soul and others and in the name of an unbroken commitment to humanity. Mavrika Slib,